Well, you can talk about films with a philosopher's zeal, or measure them all by box office appeal. But for once in your life, be real. Welcome, converts and true believers, to your movie reviewing and reappraising podcast. The name of the podcast is Be Real Guys. Uh, the name of me is Chance Solemn Pfeiffer, and the name of he is Noah Ballard. <laughs> How you doing, buddy? Hey, pal. What a what an introduction. Thanks. Yeah, you know, I mean, these movies they need a little introduction. Um, they certainly do. I don't even remember how we got to this category. Do you? So I believe the movie Silence was coming out, Martin Scorsese's latest, and we were like, yeah. why don't we do uh, movies about Christian colonialism that also happened to star Liam Neeson? And nine hours of film later, here we are talking Oof. to each other. I'm really impressed with you, Chance, uh, you? that... When you discovered that you were watching the director's cut of Kingdom of oh. Heaven, you just you just motored through. You you were stout. You stood tall. Thanks, man. Um, and you just got through that three hour and fourteen minute slog. So, as mentioned, Silence, Kingdom of Heaven, and The Mission uh, is our trio of of holy films today. Isn't it just incredible that these movies all from like not the same time period in the, uh both in their plots and like when they were made in the history of American cinema mm-hmm. Liam Neeson was just on board oh yeah like, he was just on board for the kind of movie making that this is and it like really because that's what I want to talk about too is like not only these sort of Christian missionary stories but like what does it say about Neeson as like an actor and a person that oh, he yeah. just happened to find himself <laughs> in all of these? So he's transitioned from that like Jeremy Irons school of acting where and like in Jeremy Irons defense or in Liam Neeson's defense, he's uh, Jeremy Irons is in two of these three movies. Mm -hmm. And I feel like at one point they were fundamentally like on very similar trajectories, like doing a lot of prestige filmmaking. I mean, like Liam Neeson's got Schindler's List. Um, You know, he's a serious actor. But then in 2017, Liam Neeson is like a goof. Yeah. Like he like signs up at some point he gave in, like I think around the Taken series and was just like, I'm going to I my friend Nicolas Cage seems to be making a lot of money right now. Maybe I'll just say yes to everything. But that's the thing. He doesn't say yes to everything. He only says yes to like very serious shit. Yeah. Well, even if it's even if it's dumb action movie stuff, it's not like like goofy, like Beverly Hills cop. Like he's doing very like straight-faced acting work, even in these dumb action movies. So in a way, Silence is kind of a return to form. He plays, I mean, he he seems to have come to prominence just playing all these, like, very, very righteous men, like Rob Roy, Michael Collins, Qui-Gon Jinn, like, very, like, righteous men, like, not afraid to become martyrs, and... Like that's, I think that's what all these three movies are playing off in silence in an interesting way because he's both righteous in sort of a new way, but completely humbled in the process. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And it's funny to see the trajectory of Neeson in these three movies. Cause you have him in the mission when he's like a young man, like Quite still young. before all of his big like acting breaks. Yeah. 86. Then you have him in kingdom of heaven, which is what? 2006. Five, I think. 2005. Um, where he's definitely in there in sort of this prestige role and he's not in it for very long. No. No. But it's still like Liam Neeson's a serious actor. But when you see him on the screen in silence, like, can I... The, my first impression when you see him on screen, like, in the real narrative as opposed to the prologue, mm-hmm. when you see him, like, in the quote-unquote present, he looks so much like he's trying to look like Steven Seagal. <laughs> and I almost feel like that's part of his, like, ethos right now mm. is that he's sort of this acting Steven Seagal. Interesting. That's a, I don't know if he would take that as a compliment. It's not intended as a compliment. (laughs) Which one do you want to start with? You want to go in chronological order? So the mission first? God wills it. (laughs) Yeah, get ready to hear an atheist and a Jew discuss movies. (laughs) Uh, We should probably like check our backgrounds here. So these movies all require you to like, if not be like a true believer, you at least need to have like a fundamental understanding of like Christianity, right? Uh, yeah. And you know what I discovered about myself in the process of watching them? That you I don't know sw- anything about Christianity? Well, that I did not need to discover. I already knew that. But that when movies, when people talk about God and faith in movies, I had sort of trained myself to tune out. But watching these movies, I really had to tune in because it's the whole point. Right. It's, yeah, there's no, if you tuned out, you would just would nap for three hours. <laughs> yeah. Like that's the, especially in silence. I oh think my silence is the most, uh, there's so many levels to that faith, but we start with the, we start with the mission. Do we not? Oh, we must. 1986 directed by uh, Roland Jaffa, who also did the killing fields. Um, so that you sort of know what sort of like serious, international flavor but like definitely made by british people you're getting here um from the mid 80s um this is a story uh from the 1700s yeah 1700s about a jesuit missionary who is up in the above the falls is the phrase they use above aguazu falls uh with the guarani indigenous tribe there uh having made a mission for them that missionaries played by Jeremy Irons. Um, and one of the antagonists of the tribe is this mercenary enslaver, uh, Rodrigo played by Robert De Niro ends up killing his brother in like the first 15 minutes because his brother is sleeping with his, uh, maybe wife unclear, right? I think like it was sort of understood that they would get married when he was back from like collecting the natives for slavery. Right. Right. They get married, um, but it turns out while he's been off capturing these people that Jeremy Irons is trying to save with his faith or with their faith, uh, she's actually like shacked up and fallen for his brother, who Aiden Quinn. Yeah, oh Aiden Quinn. Yep. he's a third build character, and he's dead like so quickly, real quick. Um, and so De Niro feels horrible about this. Essentially, tries to like starve and kill himself in the gutter. They call upon Jeremy Irons, who sort of knows of him because he's a famous slave trader and like very has an awful relationship. And they've had that brief interaction earlier on. Yeah, where he sees him in a tree just shooting Guaranis. 
Right. Yeah. Um, and Irons takes it upon himself to save him. Uh, De Niro finds a penance, and we'll talk about how he finds it, and uh, becomes part of this missionary. And then the movie like really turns. I like the I like the structure of this movie where you sort of spend an hour, like seeing this massive transformation in its character and then the outside world comes to bear spain and portugal have have made a treaty that really jeopardizes the safety of this san carlos mission up above the falls you should never become a priest but i am a priest and they need me if you die with blood on your hands you betray everything we've done if might is right love has no place in the world what I love about all of these movies is you're never, and they're sort of made in this like very sort of historical drama from the 1980s way where like you never really know who anyone is, you know, like it's, you never really have like those establishing scenes that you do in your traditional, like, you know, two thousands rom-com. Right. You know, there's no, for the most part, there's no like voiceover really explaining anything except in silence. Well, um, the funny thing is, the voiceover in the mission is the cardinal, I think, writing to the pope. It's not even oh, a character yeah. you've it met yet. It sort of yet. has that Amadeus yeah. hook to it, uh-huh. where like he's writing and reading, but some of it's in the past, but then like it catches up to the present and then disappears. Mm-hmm. Well, so what's the funny thing about this movie? And I think maybe it's detriment, or maybe it's just like there's so many more ridiculous things in this movie that this doesn't even register. But I think something to keep in mind structurally is the fact this movie starts with protagonist Jeremy Irons and antagonist Robert De Niro. Mm -hmm. Then it flips antagonists, so the antagonist becomes a sort of offset of the protagonist, and then this cardinal slash, like, this political force, like, becomes the antagonist for the second half of the movie, which is, I think, ripe for, like, maybe a television season, but because it happens all over the course of three hours, it's, like it feels sort of jarring to know like who, whose movie is this? Right. Like who, what am I, who, who am I, well, who am I following? And I want to come back to your point, which I think was a good point about like, you don't have the establishing moments where you're like, Oh, it's that person. It's that stock character. I got it. Like we're hit. Like right. this, be, this movie is made in a way, um, a very like kind of all a Sidney Pollock's camera and out of Africa, everything. You're just sure. so far away from everything and incredibly beautiful gorgeous visuals well that's one of the strengths of this movie is they know that they're like on location shooting is going to give this movie this if and you have to use the wide shot for that and that marconi it's one of the movie's cards the marconi pan flute oboe score is oh beautiful gorgeous gorgeous i feel like it's you a masterpiece say that yeah about well, you definitely say that about the mission and silence which like we don't often get to that with movie, but with these ones it's like their strength they're gorgeous they're shot beautifully Yeah, yeah. No, these are all, like, at least in terms of, like, camera technical and, like, special effect technical. Like, they're all pretty stunning. So you meet Jeremy Irons, uh, the father, as as your protagonist. He does this. He climbs Iguazu Falls. And it's such an interesting way to get to meet him because you have no idea who this person is. And you watch him do this very harrowing climb and this this very calm demeanor that Irons maintains throughout the movie. And you're all of a sudden sort of like, I found myself kind of rooting for a person that I didn't even know, which uh, sort of spoke to the power of the filmmaking. But then let's talk about what I know that you want to talk about is, is De Niro a fit for this movie at all? 
Well, I texted you this while I was watching this movie. Yeah. Uh, that I, I had never seen this movie before, but like Me I either. feel like it is regarded as a good movie, like a really good movie. And De Niro is so miscast. Like he's he's not only miscast in this movie, he knows he's miscast and he like doesn't care. Yeah. And he's so he delivers a performance that is not like in the style of acting that anyone on screen is doing. Like no. he's doing Jake LaMotta. He's doing Travis Bickle. Yes. Like he's delivering these very physical, like I think the best part of his performance is when he's got that, that bag full of crap, like tied to him. Yeah. You want to talk about the 800 pound bag of conquistador armor in the room? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so like one of his big establishing character sequences, it's not even a scene, it's like a sequence. <laughs> oh, it's it's like 20 minutes. Is him like doing this climb up to the titular mission, <laughs> but not only is he doing this harrowing climb, he's also got like an 800 pound bag of like, it's probably less than that. It's probably like a hundred pounds, but it's annoying. Yeah. Like the thing is not that it's heavy. It's just that it's like way too far behind him. Mm-hmm. And so it keeps getting like <laughs> caught on things and it like unattaches from him, but he like goes back and he gets it and he like, that's him like doing his penance. And this is where Neeson really comes in. Yeah. Is because Neeson has to be the guy on screen being like, that's pretty fucked up. Like what that guy's <laughs> doing over the past, like, you know, either two days or six weeks. It's unclear. Yeah. Um, maybe we should have him stop. And then you really have this film's politics take over as Jeremy Irons like turns to him and goes like, like his penance isn't done until he feels it's done. And I support him in that. Right. Um, to your point about this being really like run of the mill Scorsese De Niro, there's a point he's storming out after just seeing his little brother cheating with his wife. He's about to, like, leave the village. And some random person in the square who seems to have done nothing is just kind of standing there. And De Niro goes, hey, at whom do you laugh? At whom do you laugh? <laughs> and it's just like, yes. what? what is You're that? Literally, he's literally giving the you talking to me, but he's doing it with this, like, backwards Yoda grammar. <laughs> he's trying to get the grab the syntax of these, like, theatrically is trained... Is it to me gr- whom you speak? <laughs> is it to me? Because around here, I see no one else. <laughs> or he's doing like the Joe Pesci of like, am I a clown? Yeah. Is a clown. Clown am I to you? Clown <laughs> This movie like needs somebody who can deliver those like pretty stiff lines. Yeah. Like, like uh, Jeremy Irons can. Or like. If only they had brought in, like, this movie would have tanked and gone, like, straight to VHS or something had they brought him in. But, like, you need a Billy Zane in this role. <laughs> you need mm-hmm. someone who's, like, such a ham for, like, faith or, like, whatever he has to be a ham for. Right. A what? A whore to a gutter rat? <laughs> it's like you're in Titanic. You don't need to speak like you're in the mission. Right. But, but the flip side is, like, De Niro... He knows that he's only going to be good in this when he's physical. So he tries not to speak very much. Yeah. Or maybe they just like cut out the bulk of his lines because they're like cringeworthy. Every time he speaks, it is cringeworthy. So in the context of these movies, I wanted to talk about how the idea of God really kind of hangs back in this movie. Does it not? 
It's a surprisingly irreligious film. For people who are really acting only on faith. What I find so fascinating about these movies is because the one thing that really unifies them is that most of the characters in these films believe in like a predetermined fate. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like they think if things happen, it's because God willed it. Right. You know, and they like have fun with that logic too. And they let it like allow them, especially in um, kingdom of uh, heaven Mm -hmm. where there's, yeah, we'll talk about that in a second. But what's interesting about this movie is that like Jeremy Irons, like, he believes that God doesn't want him to fight, but like he knows he's going to get slaughtered and die. Right. So he like does what he thinks that God wills him to do. And on the other side of it, Robert De Niro believes that God willed them to fight back. Yeah. And this Cardinal believes that God willed his political power and that he has like the obligation to save or not save like a war between these two countries. And then if you even zoom out further, that's sort of, God colonialism in play between Spain and Portugal mm-hmm. of like thinking that they have any right to this land, like to begin with. Yeah. For movies that are very reverent about faith, they are almost all about people being proven wrong in some way. Of course. Yeah. But I think it's interesting to look at the politics of each movie in the question of whether or not they believed missionary shit or crusade shit or like, God fueled colonialism like is a good thing. Oh, for sure. Um, and so for this I one, think this movie believes that like that was a good thing. Ultimately, it was the politics of these countries that like ruined it. Because like the shots of them like at rest at this mission are like utopia. They have these like incredibly well constructed houses, and they're just like learning stuff and just like hanging out and like you know, building like water supply things. And it's like, God damn it. If we were only just all Jesuits, yeah, everything would be great. This movie sort of puts forward that, uh, I mean, the arc of history being what it is, the fact that colonization was imminent, that this was like the absolute best version of it was this very communal style of living. I think that this movie like really is like very pro Christianity Mm -hmm. in almost a way that's like borderline, I mean, it's. didn't you feel like it was so, like, the white hero comes in, the white yeah. savior comes in? Like, literally. It's problematic in the vein of movies like Glory that you watched in history class. This is a very social... Watch this in social studies in eighth grade kind of movie. Oh, Wouldn't yeah. you say? I'd be horribly bored. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, shall we get into rating? All movies and most of life can be described with our rating system. The four categories are good, good... Bad, bad, good, bad, and bad, good. The first good or bad refers to intellectual quality. The second is pure pleasure. Good, good is easy. Things that make you feel smart and happy, and that for both reasons you'd want to do again. Like watching The Departed, or Jaws, or calling your pal to do a podcast with him. Good, good movies make Noah say... Love that. Bad, bad is easy, too. Things that bring you neither stimulation nor joy. Basically, you just wasted your time. Things like watching White Chicks or Wild Wild West, a conceptual double album of Christian pop punk. Bad, bad movies make Chance say things like, I hated that. Good, bad, then, is something you recognize as worthwhile, but not something you enjoy. Schindler's List, Requiem for a Dream, most classical music, eating your goddamn vegetables. Good, bad is about being an adult, and these kinds of movies make Noah say, I mean, I'm glad I saw it once, 
but never again. Conversely, bad good is for your thoughtless inner child. It's Cheetos. It's late career Billy Joel. It's movies like Christmas Vacation. Honey? Kids? And Deep Blue Sea. Bad good movies make chance say, But it failed in such an entertaining way. Got all that? Now buckle up, because you're about to hear an opinion stated as fact. So the mission for you, buddy, what do you think? I think this is pretty quintessential good-bad. I have to agree. It's like a well-made movie. It's beautifully shot. Uh, most of the performances are great. And like a lot of De Niro's performance is just like a stunning physical acting performance. He's in his prime. Yeah, Absolutely. he's really he's really good when he's not speaking, but when he's speaking, it's it's unbelievable. Yeah, <laughs> it's like the script is just like he can't do it. Like he doesn't have the Neeson. No, he's fr- he's frankly just too American. Right. Um, and Neeson in this movie, by the way, plays a really interesting. He sort of plays like the um, the tertiary, like fresh faced priest who you know is not going to make it the entire time you're like oh what a young handsome young man who's definitely not going to make it yeah i mean he's also like the sort of second in command in terms of like tough guy status (laughs) yep that doesn't bode well so where do we go from here kingdom of heaven i think we must 2005 the director's cut oh my goodness gracious (laughs) so we go now to uh the 12th century uh, flashback to the 12th century, we start in France, where Orlando Bloom, uh, playing a character named Balian, who's a blacksmith, uh, his wife, they lost their child, and his wife killed herself, and Orlando Bloom's asshole brother is the town priest, played by Michael Sheen, which, don't you just think, everyone wants to believe they're the Balian of their own story, but they're probably the Michael oh, Sheen. <laughs> Oh, I'm definitely the Michael Sheen of my own story. You're probably the guy who, like, steals people's funeral money um, and then just, like, curses them out, tells them to leave the town. And then is both yeah. impaled and burned alive at the same time. <laughs> I mean, he definitely gets what's coming to him. Yeah, in two different deadly ways. Um, That's when I really, like... You know when, like, you're on an airplane and, like, the turbulence is, like, okay and you can manage it? And then there's the times where you really, like, fasten your seatbelt? <laughs> uh-huh. Like, that's when I knew this movie was just, like, okay. Here we go. You're going to be you're gonna be real violent, but otherwise pretty nonsensical. <laughs> like, I'm in. <laughs> Three hours of turbulence. Here we come. Um, yep. So, Liam Neeson, uh, Godfrey, the Baron of Ebel, um, shows up and... Because he, like, raped Orlando Bloom's mom, and that is probably his father, right? Yes, this, he confesses as much, and is like, blacksmith, uh, come to Jerusalem with me, because I'm... It was interesting, it, they made it seem like in this day and age, if you were a knight in Europe, crusading was just, like, something to do. Like, you want right. to come crusade with me? Uh, and then Liam Neeson has a very, very Raz al Ghul-type sequence, uh, this is the same year as Batman Begins, and... Uh, dies on the way to Jerusalem from his injuries in a skirmish and Orlando Bloom gets there and he sort of like realizes the position of power that his father the Baron has in this very uh, fragile Christian rule of Jerusalem uh, overseen by the king Edward Norton who is a leper and uh, is very feeble because of it and his death is sort of imminent and he wears a very striking mask and uh, Orlando Bloom soon realizes that he's going to have to keep the peace in this uh, version of Christian colonialism. Yeah. 
Do you think like going to the Holy Land in this time is like the equivalent nowadays being like, yeah, I'm just gonna like move to Portland for a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just think I mean the setup for this movie is pretty flimsy if you like don't look that hard at it, and is troubling if you do, because like it's so they he basically he so like I said he raped Orlando Bloom's mother and then like needs an heir. So he's just like going around to find like all the women he raped to see if they have kids stumbles upon Orlando Bloom decides like he'll do. And uh, yeah, then they go to this land that they have no entitlement to and help like the local indigenous people while like just trying to kill the hell out of the Muslims. When this wall comes down. There will be no quarter if you throw down your arms, your families will die. We can break this army here. So I say let them come. It's reminiscent very in very many obvious ways of Gladiator. And you know that oh, yeah. when Ridley Scott like went to the studio and they were just like, you want how much money to make a movie that's going to be how long? And he was just like, I'm the man who made Gladiator. Do you not remember me? Were you not entertained? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, okay, here's $200 million to make Kingdom of Heaven. Um but it's that was not, incredible. It's not a simple. It's not nearly as simple a story as Gladiator. And it just has so much like Christ stuff in it. And you know who is not Russell Crowe? Orlando Bloom. Orlando Bloom is. That's the funny thing about him. He's so good because the only thing he's famous for, in my opinion, other than like being a supporting character in Pirates of the Caribbean, is Legolas in Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. And in that movie, he had, like, the big, important lines of dialogue, which I speak, mm-hmm. you know. And so he's good at, like, doing the things that Robert De Niro cannot do. <laughs> That's true, yeah. But when you ask him to do anything, and you mentioned this when we were texting this week, if you ask him to do anything other than be handsome yeah, or, like, be sad about stuff, like, you don't... I didn't buy that he was, like, sad about his dead wife. I know that he was, like, looking at places where she wasn't anymore, <laughs> you know, while uh-huh. they, like, really aggressively cut to flashback. Right. But, like, he couldn't, like, do the... He doesn't do the physical performance that De Niro does as someone who's coming to faith. I thought I was watching the two-hour, 20-minute version of this movie, so I was making notes imagining what was in the director's cut that you watched. And bear in mind, I was watching the director's cut. I just didn't right. know it. So I was just like, oh, that scene with like the people in the forest would have been way longer because they need to establish that they're friends. And they wouldn't have had that stupid montage where the King of Jerusalem and Balian become best buds in montage because they like chess. Like, these would have been very much expanded in the director's cut, but I was watching the director's cut. Like, these are critical, like, character bonds not established. Right. Well, apparently in the non-director's cut, the Edward Norton character is, like, not really in the movie. Really? Yeah. Oh, my. Like, that character just doesn't exist, and he, like, just takes over because there's just, like, unrest in the region. Sounds boring. I suppose. Because the well, Ed I mean, Nor- like, this one was also pretty boring. <laughs> Ed I mean, Norton's mask is probably top three cool things in this movie. It, it definitely is a card this movie has to play. Yes. Um, 
The other one's being the fact that it has a ton of money and the special effects are great. And every actor who is ever in Game of Thrones or Rome is in it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I did a little like, like every time I saw somebody. Is Jamie Lannister's in the first two minutes and Jorah Mormont's in the last two? <laughs> and then the guy who uh, gets killed by the, the Sand Snakes is in it too. He's like the second in command of the oh, Muslim yeah, army. that's right. It's got everybody, dude. For being a three-hour movie, there are still at least 10 characters where you're like, I don't understand that person's deal or what they want or their relationship to the main people in this movie. Right. Which is crazy. It's just the the finest point I can put on it is that it sucks to have a movie this long and have so few interesting characters. It's not like that interesting of a story. So they're sort of burdened by that one. But then, yeah, it's like Orlando Bloom, you cannot mount a three hour biblical <laughs> epic on the shoulders of Orlando Bloom. That's just irresponsible casting. It's not a good idea. He's not interesting. I think the only person who's interesting in this movie is Brendan Gleeson. Because he plays... J- Brennan Gleeson is great. Because he just and shows up and is insane. He's part of this... Well, that's the thing, but he's so restrained, too. Yeah. He's just like, again, he's like, it's God's will that I'm this violent, yeah. and <laughs> yeah. I'm here to kick some ass. This is of the of uh, a note that all three of these movies could strike. This is the one that I think has the most um, like zealotry as absurdism. Like when they're arguing about whether they should go to war, uh, essentially to slaughter against Salahuddin's army, the the court of the Knights of the Templar are like, "You don't think we could win? That means you hate God. Like God is the one who determines right. battles." Right. Yeah. Like it was considered blasphemous to say that they like couldn't win that battle that they were completely outmatched. But I think it's it's also sort of like a weirdly religious movie because like it kind of says like, "Well, yeah." Like, it was God's will. Yeah, that's true. Which is sort of strange. Like, that the fact that, like, or, like that Orlando Bloom lives. That Orlando Bloom lives, and frankly, that I think that the Muslims take back Jerusalem. That it ends on quite a note of peace, as if to say that right. Saladin and his people indeed were holier than these corrupt Christians who just, like, made a new Paris out of Jerusalem. Interesting. See, I kind of read it more as it being, like, uh, sort of an Alamo story mm-hmm. about Jerusalem that was supposed to say like, yeah, guys, remember when they took it from us, the Muslims? Mm-hmm. And like, this is the story of that. And that's what the ending kind of felt like to me, just sort of almost propagandist sort of, but like white people really are entitled to the Israel area kind of movie. Oh, really? Yeah. I don't know. There are some great shots from Ridley Scott in this movie. The vultures coming over the battlefield is uh, is quite a is quite a piece. Like after one sure. of the initial slaughters, or like when the whole Saracen army is is praying, uh, like that's quite right. a that's quite a beautiful scene. But I don't know if I love the. I think Ridley really overdid it with that thing where he um, kind of modulates the action between 0.75 speed and 1.5 speed. I found that oh, trick yeah. to be sort of like overused here in lieu of actual practical effects. Yeah, he likes to do that like that weird slow motion, but like they cut out frames too. Yes, kind of. that's what it is. You know who just goes 
nuts for this movie, though. Your dad? So this, I, I brought a weird... Yes. So my dad, like, absolutely goes crazy for this film. Why? And I've only seen it in, like, weird, like, ten minute or five, ten minute, like, intervals when I was, like, just walking by the living room where he's like, have you ever seen this before? It's incredible. <laughs> you know? And I always go, no. Um, so I watched it, like, thinking that... I just... I guess I thought it would be, like, a little bit... Like, I think it's really historically accurate. Like, I think that's why my Needlessly. dad loves it. Needlessly historically accurate with characters that you, like, don't need. Mm-hmm. Like, that could have easily been combined. Like, there was no reason you needed both Brendan Gleeson and Martin Sokis. No. They could have been the same guy and it would have been, like, a real character instead of just, like, stereotypes from this sort of, like, big budget period piece. Yeah. Yeah. And... Because that's the thing they have a they have characters big enough for like a Game of Thrones level ambition, mm-hmm. but like you're not working with ten hours here. You're working with like what should be two and a half, yeah, at most, yeah. Ugh. So, so if I I'll I can come out first and be like I just don't think this movie's worth it. It's in the style of good bad. Oh, it definitely is in the style of but good, I bad. think it's bad bad. I'm gonna. Apologies to my father. Like I know you love this movie. Um, Does he like the director's cut or the theatrical version? Oh, I'm sure he's like a director's cut snob. Uh-huh. Uh I'm sorry to say that I agree with my co-host here that this movie is bad, bad. There's just no. It's need. just like not that well made. It's not that interesting of a film. The performances aren't very good. There's it's way more boring than it is like moving or anything. Yes. <laughs> there are like interesting <laughs> scenes. That's really like the thing that these movies have to grapple with. Can you at least be is it more moving? Or is it moving? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This one sides with boring. And right. this is the thing we'll, as we transition to silence, I've, Watching Andrew Garfield, I was just like, is Andrew Garfield the Orlando Bloom of this new generation? But at least silence takes it upon itself to um, basically test everything about this sort of innocent person's faith. And these movies, you're going to have a protagonist who does everything because it's God's will. It's not that interesting to begin with. But then for the movie, like, not to really do much with an actor who's already not that interesting, it's a tough right. sell. Well, I think, like, what is so brilliant about, if we're moving to silence now... Yes, indeed. The casting of Andrew Garfield, um, is that he is such, like, a Hollywood do-gooder. Like, he was Spider-Man. Like, he is... I don't know that he's an Orlando Bloom. I think what he's closer to, frankly, is, like, a Tobey Maguire. Okay, Sure. Where he's just like, don't do anything mean to Tobey Maguire. He doesn't have the constitution <laughs> to handle it. You know he's going to get upset. Uh-huh. And so, and this one sort of throws a similar thing at him, a similar challenge. This is just a guy of, who wants to spend his days in a chocolate house and this movie. He just wants to, <laughs> chocolate house, like Jesus house, like he just wants to, that's all he wants. Yeah. And he wants to find his teacher. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then... He has his world, like, torn up in front of him. Yeah. That's really the journey of this movie is that you meet him, uh, Padre Rodriguez, and him and his compatriot, Adam Driver, uh, they leave Portugal. They are also Jesuit priests to go find Liam Neeson in 
Japan. This is uh, 17th century Japan. Closed uh, Tokugawa shogunate closed to Western influence, especially Christians. Japan. Um, yeah. And they go to find their mentor, uh, Liam Neeson, Father Ferreira, who has supposedly <laughs> uh, apostatized and uh, taken a Japanese family and is now living as a Japanese person. They sort of don't believe this, but they it does. They were doing nothing in Portugal apparently, so this is their this is their mission, and they go and they risk it all. Ferreira is lost to us. He denounced God in public and surrendered the faith. That's not possible. Father Ferreira risked his life to spread our faith all over Japan. It seems to me that our mission here is more urgent than ever. We must go find Father Ferreira. This is in your hearts, then, both of you? Yes. Then I must trust God has put it down. The moment you set foot in that country, you step into high danger. It's the first Marty Scorsese movie in, in three years, since Wolf of Wall Street. And I have to say that Neither of us liked Wolf of Wall Street very much, did we? No. No, because even though that movie was like sort of like an interesting spectacle in some ways with some memorable scenes, it just had a really profound sense of emptiness under the right. Scorsese rise and fall story of excess. Yeah, like because that's the end of the at the end of the day, like as much of a scumbag as like Henry Hill or Travis Bickle or like even uh, the people from Casino right. are you still like want them to succeed at the end because they're doing it in such like, like it's, it's not like, it's not privileged. Right. And I felt like with, with Wolf of Wall Street, it's like, here's this privileged guy, like just taking advantage of that privilege and like shitting on like women and minorities and the institution that I happen to believe is like the one we should be living by in the United States uh-huh. and getting away with it. And like, that's not as cool as like seeing someone rise in like almost a corporate structure of like mafia or casino right. or something like that, where you do have to pay your dues. Right. So yeah, I was looking at the stuff that Scorsese has been like slated to make or rumored to be attached to. I really don't want to see him do movies about Jordan Belfort or Mike Tyson or Bill Clinton or Frank Sinatra. This movie to me, even as as challenging a watch as is inherent to the material, it felt like a capstone kind of work. It definitely felt like a capstone work in his like more religious films and like right. the more religious themes in his films. Yes. Like a lot of his I mean it's it's subtle but it's always there is that a lot of his characters deal with this idea of is this path I'm going down the one that has been set out for me or am I really like in control of my own will. Mm-hmm. And for the most part his like the morality of the films he makes those sort of laws dictate that like no, there is God. Like there, God does intervene in certain situations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this one questions like, it's almost like a like study of a Scorsese movie, mm-hmm. right? You have a guy like totally alienated from what he's comfortable in. And like among all these strangers who even from the start are trying to like fuck with him. Yeah. And society's telling him he's wrong. And then through, I don't know, some sort of annoying rhetorical conversations he has with people (laughs) and like 
but like some really targeted and well done like action sequences. Not even action, just like moments of intensity. Yes, for sure. The viol- the violence and, and the graphic nature of this movie is like very jarring because it's so like you think you're watching like a PG thirteen PBS movie and then someone's head gets fucking like chopped off like very aggressively and like very like graphically. And in the same way we talked about the mission, like you, ha- it has to be said. This is not a place that I think American moviegoers have been to cinematically. Like it is, I think it was mostly shot in Taiwan, but sure. uh, 17th century Japan, not a place you've been. These in- really like torturous styles of execution where they like crucify the people and basically let the waves, let high tide kill them. It's sort of right. horrifying to empathize with the characters in that moment, but like in terms of a cinematic space to take in. It's not like anything you've ever seen and quite enrapturing in that way. Absolutely. Yeah. You have like a script that's not so like stiff as I think the previous two, but the other challenge this movie has, or maybe like it's what's sort of nice about it is that it attempts to like have these Japanese actors, not only like speak in their native tongue, but Mm -hmm. also like sort of, act in a way that is almost more Japanese than this Western style of acting that we've seen and that they're up against with Andrew Garfield. That's an interesting point, particularly with uh, Isio Gata, who plays the Inquisitor. His performance is so striking because the thing is, everyone in this movie believes that they're right, of course, about the way that they want to be. And he's sort of like this hobbled, old jester type guy who's basically overseeing an inquisition um but he knows that he is so right and that his rightness about like what religions can take hold in japan are so correct that he almost finds it funny to psychologically torment uh rodriguez if that's a fascinating performance especially that scene where he like deflates you know what i'm talking about yeah 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 that's such a strange so weird and then, like, I love the interpreter too. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's who's just an like performance. every. He was just so like excited every time like they were gonna do a new thing. Like, even if it was something horribly violent, he was like, "We've invited a guest. <laughs> Can you guess who it is?" <laughs> it was almost like he was like narrating a game show or something. Like, it was very. That's great. It was interesting. It reminded me of some of the sort of weird cultural moments that happen in movies like uh, Lost in Translation, uh-huh. where, like. Scarlett Johansson just can't like figure out what some of these people want from her. Mm-hmm. And it like felt like that too, between Andrew Garfield. So it's almost like, yeah, it's this sort of period piece with the same sort of cultural questions about, and maybe they're strangely relevant cultural questions about how East and West interact with each other. Yeah. Uh, Tadanobu Asano to give that guy a shout. That's a really interesting performance as well. Um, Yes, talking about East and West, I think this is the movie of our three that definitely has the most interesting sort of strictly colonial read. Because the question, the question comes. I mean, I don't, I don't know what a spoiler really is for this movie. Um, (laughs) Do you want to consider that there are none, and I should just talk about it? Yeah, I don't think there's. I mean, nothing surprising happens. (laughs) So when yeah, I guess when they do find Liam Neeson, who his faith is tested, and he like you know um, kind of does it or kind of does not do anything. Great point. Um, 
When they do find Liam Neeson, he is it's a very interesting Neeson performance because he, like Garfield, is sort of broken. Um, cause he yeah. wanted to proselytize the Christian faith and instead he's been forced to, uh, like weed out Christian artifacts and proselytize, uh, Buddhism or Shintoism. Um, but th- his sort of conversation, like the final blow to, to Garfield's faith is fascinating because he's basically like, he basically implies that Christianity is like inherently, like inherently has a problem with like this great man fallacy in god and christ and that garfield is the only one self-centered enough to see himself like a christ-like figure while all these christian japanese people basically died for him yeah well that's like the interesting that's the the second nissan appearance so you see him in a prologue where he's like watching people get tortured and then it cuts to several years later when they figure out that he's like gone rogue um but when they see him again, when he has his like General Kurtz or his Colonel Kurtz moment mm-hmm. where you <laughs> yeah. finally see him again, um, well, one, he looks so much calmer and like so much like he's not haggard. He's not like, you know, pouring things over his head like his like goats are being like, you know, killed by groups of people. No. He's just like he looks like cheesy and old and like well fed and like Steven Seagal, like currently. Yeah. Yeah. And he comes in and has this really interesting conversation with Andrew Garfield about like, listen, man, Christianity doesn't work here and I'm stuck here and I'm making the best of it. But you should know that like the way that this culture understands the world, like Christianity just like doesn't get in for them. And so not only am I doing this to survive, but also like Christianity doesn't really exist. It's not as real as maybe you thought it was. Cause like it doesn't apply to all men. And that's like a pretty striking blow, I think, like from like me as a viewer, too, because mm-hmm. like you think you're watching this movie. And for me, as like a Jew with like very no, like very little interest in Christian stuff, <laughs> like it was a pretty big deal when I was like rooting for Andrew Garfield's. Yeah. What do you do now? But that's also the problem with the movie is that like it doesn't know how to end because he really like just goes with it. Yeah. But he never gets to be a martyr. He never gets to be on the cross. No, he basically, I won't spoil the details, but like maybe finds comfort. We don't know in a deeply personal faith um, that is secret from everyone. But is that ultimately a failure for a person who was a proselytizer to start out with? I think so in a way. Like the the thing to do was like you stepped on this like little tile of Jesus. Yeah, you just like had to put your Christ. You had to, and you just had to like put your foot on it. it. And yeah. it was like very difficult for a lot of these Japanese to do that. But some of them did, and then like ran off and like were fine. But the people who wouldn't do it, they would like yeah crucify in many cases or like burn or like cause them to drown. But not like sp- that's like the weird thing about all these deaths. It's they're so passive. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great point. They're like, we're just going to keep your arms from moving. So when we throw you into the water, you can't swim. It's like, we're not going to hold your head down. We're going to create situations like the tidal rise and you're on these crosses. So you'll drown or die from exposure. But like, we're not killing you. We're putting you in a position that you will die. Can we turn toward our, our rating? Absolutely. I just, this is one of those movies that we've gone for a minute now. I think is fascinating to talk about after the fact 
But oh, if yeah. this move, if someone would have shoved a tile with the movie poster of this movie in front of me forty minutes in, I would have stepped on it. Like this, <laughs> this is a pretty good bad movie about like people being broken mentally and physically. I'm going to go ahead and not strongly, but like disagree with you okay. and say that th- this movie has definitely like stuck with me yeah. over the last week. Um, and like, if it's on HBO or Netflix or something like I'll probably watch it again. Just when? To, like, when you're 40? Just to like, no, I think I would do it like in the next six months, like just to see it again. Wow. Cause I think it's like a, I'm, I'm just so fascinated by like the performance and that they like tear these layers off of Andrew Garfield, like as it goes. Yes. Uh huh. Like, and the, I think one of my favorite scenes of him is when he gets captured and they like put him into that group where there's the other Japanese people there. Mm-hmm. And she like gives him that little cucumber. Oh yeah. And he's like, wh- like, what do you, you want to just eat this? Like, we're about to die. Like, aren't you like upset about that? And they're like, aren't you the priest? Like, are we supposed to be like, fine? Aren't you the like, Jesus oh. figure? Yeah. And then he's like, well, thanks for the cucumber. And then he eats it. <laughs> that's true. That's true. It was such a great scene where, and that's what I love about Scorsese as like a, an older now director, wiser director, is that he like can have these characters who are like morally, like morally compromised. Yeah. Yeah. Like they're human beings. And like, that's what he gets about these people that they're just like his drive was not to be a good christian his drive was to have the purpose of being a priest yeah yeah like and that's i mean that's also something that scorsese like almost went into as a younger man and i think he sort of thinks of himself still as a priest where he's just giving you these fascinating parables but not of like biblical verse uh but more of how compromised people can be just to get to what they want it's so interesting. I just don't think there's rewatch value. Yeah, no, I th- I think I want to see it again. Like, I think I would get more from it. And I'm probably going to, for that reason, give it a good, good. Like, yes, it went on a bit too long. But I feel like it's like a religious sermon that, like, I really enjoyed. But, like, yeah, maybe it went on too long. I hear um, you. I wouldn't fight you on it that. It doesn't mean that I didn't, like, I wouldn't hear it again. Noah. Sir. Are we to the end? Is there any uh, any stray thoughts? It's just sort of interesting, the religious experience of watching nine hours about movies about Jesus and the people who love him. Um, <laughs> uh huh. Is that they all have that sort of like, I felt like a bit of a martyr, but I wondered, like, is suffering for the podcast, like, is that a Christian thing? Or was I just sort of putting myself in an unnecessary, you know, was I Robert De Niro, like, carrying that that basket or that bag full of uh like armor and stuff or was i are we but andrew garfield like watching our listeners just flounder in boredom as we sit here and do nothing (laughs) uh sarah what is god's will sarah earlier this week was like do you ever think about how maybe people won't be interested in that and i was like oh yes of course (laughs) and yet i am already five hours through my uh recompense Find our episodes on BeRealGuys.com and SoundCloud and iTunes and wherever you get your podcasts. We should be there. You can talk to us on Twitter and Facebook. Email us at BeRealGuys at gmail.com. And until next time, uh, may he be with you in your darkest hour. Yeah. May, may, we, be, may we be with you. Capital W for the both of us. 
Yeah, I'm the force and the force is with me. Hey, I like that. Is that how it goes? I think, yeah. think that is. My friend. Sir, always a pleasure. Peace be with you. Well, I was born an original sinner. I was